Did you sing those words that I just sang a few minutes ago? For every knee to bow down, for every heart to believe. I think you were singing them because I heard a lot of people singing behind me. And my question was, what needs to happen in me for that to happen? I mean, we sing this quite liberally and happily, don't we? Every heart, every tongue, every knee. It's an easy thing to sing and it's an easy thing to, and I'm not, and it was wonderful. The worship was wonderful. This isn't a criticism in any way. You know, we get caught up in that. That's what I want. I want everyone to know this amazing truth and freedom that I experience in Jesus. And Steve, your prayer was fantastic. And, um, and dance, yeah. Um, and all that all was going through my head was, what do I, what, something needs to happen in me. What needs to happen in me? Which is what we were singing about. So I'm praying to God, what needs to happen in me for that to come? There's something God needs to do, and we've talked all about this, and there's something that needs to happen to me. Can you pop my first slide up for me? Thank you. Um, we've, we're starting a new series today on um, discipleship. Discipleship is a word that has very Christian connotations, but it actually just means a disciple, just means an imitator or a follower. A follower. The group that hung around with Jesus that we read about in the Bible were called his disciples. Actually, in the culture of the day, in the Jewish culture, of that time, it was normal for rabbis or teachers to have disciples, people who would be learning with them and learning, they were being instructed in the ways of the law, they would be following and imitating them. So although Jesus wasn't like a rabbi, didn't have the sort of formal rabbi upbringing or training, it's not a surprise that the people who followed him were called or referred to as disciples. As people who've chosen to follow Jesus today, we don't often refer to ourselves as disciples, not in this culture. Maybe you do, but I don't very much. Um, but we do use the phrase discipleship to describe the process by which we try to become better followers of Jesus. We're on a journey together. What does it mean to be a disciple or to be a better disciple? Is there a target? Is there something to aim at? Can we actually measure it? What, what do you measure to find out how you're doing with your discipleship? Most church leaders I know measure two things. They measure the number of people who come on a Sunday and the amount of money they give. I'm not sure that's necessarily going to cut it. I think it goes a lot deeper than that. What was Jesus' last instruction to his followers, to his disciples? We read it in Matthew 28. It says, I want you to go and... Make disciples of all nations. So whatever else being a disciple is, whatever else we're counting or measuring, one of the key parts of it is that we're making disciples. Disciples make disciples. Do you get me? Do you get me? Hello? Is anyone awake this morning? Come on, woke up. You need to say, preach it, brother. Amen, bring it on, all that sort of stuff. Um... Thank you. So, come on. Sound like you mean it. No, no, I'm just teasing. Um, So, whatever else it is, it's about helping others grow in their faith as well as... So it's about being a disciple and about making disciples. We've spoken recently um, a number of times over the last few weeks and months about the vision that God has given us as a church. About what it looks like to be Winchester Vineyard in this time and in this place. And we've talked about how God has said, said to us that he wants us to lead our communities into life. We've used a number of phrases. One of the phrases we've used is scattered 
servants who change the story of our community, who change the story of our city. And these, this, kind of, this kind of vision challenges our thinking, and it has challenged our thinking on a number of issues. We've um, highlighted the, the area of pastoral care, what it looks like to live, um, to live strong inward whilst being outwardly focused. There was a better way of saying that that I didn't write down. Inwardly strong whilst outwardly focused. We talked about that. It's challenging. We've talked about what it means to talk about revival. To use that phrase revival and to actually go beyond revival. Paul was talking about that for the last couple of weeks, about transformation. Well, over the next three weeks, I want us to talk about discipleship. What it is to actually be disciples and what it is to make disciples. We want to unpack what that looks like in our culture and in our community here. And we want to look at what the Bible has to say. So I've got a question for you. And in a minute, I want you to turn to the person next to you. And just in one or two sentences, see if you can answer it. Don't go into a whole load of detail. And the question is, if you are a Christian, if you are somebody who has decided to follow Jesus at any point in your life, what was the process of discipleship that you went through? How were you discipled in your Christian faith? And by the way, if you're not somebody who's following Jesus, you can also answer this question. Who is it that you're imitating? Who is it that you're imitating or trying to be like in your life? So I just want you to turn to the person next to you and just tell them, just for a a minute, not for long at all, what was the process in broad terms that you went through as as a Christian? Or if you're not a Christian, who are you imitating? Who are you trying to be like at this point in your life? Okay. You can continue that discussion later if you want to turn back around. Thank you, that would be great. By the way, if you are here and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, you're very welcome. And I really hope that this talk is interesting. And I really hope that it helps you think through a bit more about what it means to be, to follow Jesus. Um, Because what I want to do is I want to look at how Jesus did this. And if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to John and chapter 4. Okay, the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 4. It's commonly known this story as the woman at the well. It's an, it, it describes an encounter that Jesus had when he was in, the, in the, the part of the country called Samaria, which he was passing through. It's not a place where most Jews or even non-Jews would go, actually. Um, the Samaritans were a sort of slightly, slightly set-apart sect, not, for, not of their own choosing. and They didn't really fit in anywhere else. Anyway, Jesus is there and he's walking through and he stops at this well and he meets this woman. Now I'm not going to read the main part of the story. Uh, I'll just summarise it for you but we're going to pick up in verse 28. So what happens is Jesus goes and he sits down and there's a woman at this well and she is drawing water. Now the first thing is that this woman isn't drawing water at the time when most women would be doing that. Culturally she's in the middle of the day. Well nobody wants to go and do that kind of work in the middle of the day. So it shows you something about the her and her status in the village. Okay, she's not really part of the in crowd. You, don't, you, you want to do that kind of work when it's first thing in the morning, when it's not too hot. Anyway, this woman is at the well, and Jesus sits down with her, and he has a whole long discussion with her, an encounter with her, a conversation, where he says, please, I'm thirsty, can you get me a drink? And, and she gets him a drink, and he just starts to talk about, uh, starts to talk about what's going on, and um, who he is. And he says, I've got, I've got, I've got more, uh, thank you for this water, I have more spiritual water for you. 
And she says, wow, that sounds interesting. And then he kind of reads her mail. He gives her a word. He, he speaks to her and he says, go and, um, go and fetch your husband. She says, well, I haven't got a husband. He says, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're living with isn't your husband. At which point the girl lady goes, what? <laughs> How does this guy know this? And she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And he says, well, actually, I'm more than a prophet. And actually, he continues to talk to her until she realizes that the person that she has met is the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been talking about, the one that they've promised for a long time, that there's something really special about Jesus. She has this amazing encounter with Jesus, an amazing encounter with Jesus. And you can read all about that for yourself, but I want to pick up the story in verse 28. In 28, at the end of this little encounter, the woman said, it says the woman actually left her jar there. Okay, so having come all this way, picked up the water, the woman left her jar, this is John chapter 4 verse 28, and went away into the town. And she said to the people in the town, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? And it says that the people went out of the town and started to come to Jesus. So this woman's had an encounter with Jesus She's had a conversation which has completely changed her thinking, literally, in a heartbeat. Anyway, we miss out the next few verses because Jesus has a quite in-depth conversation with disciples about food and harvest, which is interesting, but not for the point that we want to make today. We pick up again in verse 39. Okay, this is the end of the story. Okay, so the woman's gone, she's met Jesus, she's gone back to her town. She said, you'll never guess what, there's a guy out by the well, and he has just told me, Everything I ever did. There's something special about this guy. I think he's the one, the one that the the Jews have been talking about for hundreds of years. I think he's the Messiah, the Christ. Anyway, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans then came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. And after two days he departed for Galilee. Now the Samaritans were a really racially mixed group. They were partly Jewish and partly Gentile, non-Jewish ancestry. And so basically they were looked down upon by both the Jews and the non-Jews. They were pretty marginalized. This woman encountered Jesus in the most dramatic way. And he read her mail. He acknowledged her past. He talked the truth, but he also talked grace. He said, you're right. You haven't lived the life of you. You haven't lived the kind of life that, that God's looking for. But he also loves her, forgives her and sets her free. And her response straight away is what? To go and tell other people. Immediately. She was, so, she was so enamored with the fact that she needed to go and tell somebody what happened to her. She even left her water jar there. Let me read you what a really great Bible scholar called Tom Wright says about this woman. He says here, he says the way this passage ends is worth pondering deeply. Here is a woman who a matter of an hour before, an hour or so before, had been completely trapped in a life of immorality as a social outcast. There was no way backwards or forwards for her. All she could do was eke out a daily existence and make sure that she went to the well at the time of day when there would be nobody else there to sneer or mock. 
And now she has become the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. Before any of Jesus' own followers could do it, she has gone to this Samaritan village and told them, this guy's the Messiah. And then, as they have come to see Jesus for themselves, they have become convinced. My question is, what was the discipleship program that this lady went through? What course did she attend in order to go and tell the people what Jesus had done for her? Was it Alpha? Freedom in Christ? Well, it was, but not the way we know it. (laughs) Did she go on a Holy Spirit day or go to a New Believers 101 course? How many weeks did this lady attend church or her small group before she was let out and unleashed into the streets and into her community to tell them what Jesus had done? How many? Not many. It says it was later the same day. Later the same day. How did the rest of those villagers come to Jesus? They came to Jesus because they heard someone tell a story. She said, you've got to see this guy. You've got, you've, got, you've got to experience this for yourself. In a moment they came to Jesus. They said, we think there's something about you. Do you think you could stay here another couple of days? Do you think Jesus goes, no, no I've got to get somewhere else actually. I can, I can disrupt my schedule and I can stay here for two days, yeah. Two days for a whole town. And at the end of two days, the town comes to the lady and they says, well, you know, we no longer believe just because of what you told us. We now have seen this and met this guy for ourselves. Two days to disciple a whole town. How cool is that? <laughs> thank, thank you, Paul. Thank you. In a moment, in a moment, a whole town came to faith and their discipleship. Jesus spent two days with them and then he probably never saw them again. Maybe he went back, I don't know, but here's the big question. How can Jesus do in two days what we in the church have sometimes struggled to do in 20 years? It is possible to have been in and around church for 20 years and yet still not be standing on our own two feet, spiritually. It's like when you get a little kid, you know, they're, they're only little and they need everything doing for them. Spoon feed them, change the nappies, all that stuff. But at the age of 20, if everything's okay with the child, you don't expect to be doing that. That's no longer discipleship, that's dysfunction. I'm still helping read someone, if I'm still helping someone to learn to read the Bible and hear God for themselves after 20 years of following Jesus, that's, that's codependence, that's not discipleship. So you might be thinking, well, did they all make it in the long term? What about all those people? Did they really all continue to follow Jesus in the long term? That's a great question. I'm going to address that next week. You'll have to come back. But the fact remains that Jesus seemed to manage to do something that we can just dream about. And he managed to do it. A whole town in one go. That is the kind of transformation that Paul's been talking about over the last couple of weeks. How many of you here, a little test... Just stick your hand up if you're brave enough to let me know. How many of you here would say that you have made a decision to follow Jesus, come to faith in the last year or so, roughly? Just stick your hand in the air. Last two years? Thank you. Last couple of years? Last three years? Five years? Thank you. Brilliant. Last ten years? I won't go any further. What's the best way to grow as a disciple? What's the best way 
to grow in our discipleship? You know, throughout church history, they've tried to answer this question and they've come up with a number of answers and... Oh, that's working now. Um, there's a whole bunch of methods. I'm not going to go through them. I'll just put one slide up to flag them up. Throughout, throughout the history of the last 2,000 years, the church has asked this question and essentially come back with five key methods over 2,000 years. There's a relational method. Basically, they didn't really have anything else in the early church. They just had each other. <laughs> they didn't have any books or Bibles or any of that kind of stuff. They didn't have any buildings or structures. And so it all happened through small groups and community. And and a lot of it still does. When the church got a bit more organised, it started to happen through what we call experiential discipleship. So like some of the more institutionalised churches, the Catholics, the Anglicans, the Orthodox, they started to say the way to to learn about Jesus is to be pointed to him. So they started to design buildings and architecture and music and pictures and icons and incense. They used to sort of get all of the senses going so that it points you towards Jesus. And then, you know, much later when uh, the printing press was invented, it was the educational route because then suddenly the Bible became available for everybody. And so the way to grow in faith was to just learn and read the Bible for ourselves and understand it. And then over the last couple of centuries, um, these two other discipleship methods have come in personal and incarnational or personal discipleship. That's probably more down the route of theologically conservative churches where they would say, actually, we're going to provide you with not just a Bible but a whole bunch of other material that's going to help you understand the Bible more. And basically, this is about you and your personal relationship with God. Okay, And so the way to grow in your faith is to grow in your personal relationship with God. It's to grow in holiness. It's to learn the Bible and it's to pray. It's very much a personal thing. And Kind of on the other side of that, the churches that were perhaps a little bit more liberal, they had a completely different approach. Their approach was, well, look, the way to learn is to go and do the things that Jesus did. You know, to go and heal the sick and to feed the poor and do all the stuff that Jesus did, take action on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And if you can go and be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world, then you will learn what it is to follow him. Which is the right method? Luckily, you don't have to answer that question. And we'll, again, look at this. Which is the right way? Well, they all have merits and they're all biblical in one way or another. And we'll cover this ground more over the next couple of weeks. But essentially, I want to make this point that one of our big problems as the church in general, I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church in general, is that we've spent quite a lot of time discussing, maybe even arguing, maybe even fighting about which of these is the right method to disciple people. And in the meantime, our culture has gone more and more out of control. The people in our communities are more and more looking for hope and answers to their brokenness. And our churches are declining. And so I just wonder if we've been asking the wrong questions about discipleship. I wonder if instead of saying what's the best way to disciple those who have come to faith, we need to say, well, first of all, how does following Jesus change everything in a person's life? How is it that my street, my community, my city, my workplace, the coffee shop I frequent, the playground that I go to every morning, the school or the college that I'm in, how does that change because there are disciples of Jesus present? And how do we as a church become and make disciples that change communities? Which communities, I hear you ask? Towns and cities. Which communities are we meant to change? Well, for me, I'm starting with this one. Okay, that's Winchester. And it's not a very good photo, but 
It's a fairly good representation. Now, you don't all live in Winchester. Luckily, we have an amazing database that shows us where you do all live. And if you can just about make out those red dots, this is, this is half of the picture. Those of you who live north of Winchester, you'll see yourselves in a minute. Okay? But basically, at the top there, all those red dots, that's kind of Winchester where the church is. This is where we live. These are the communities that we're part of. Therefore, the question is, which communities does Jesus want to change because we are part of them? The answer is all of these. Whether it's Netley or Hamble or Burzeldon or Hedge End or West End or Eastley or Chandler's Ford, Colden Common, all the way over there, Petersfield, you know, uh, Winchester and all the Kingsworthy. And those of you who live up north, by the way, I had to put a separate map on just for these people in Gosport down here. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, those of you who live on the north of the city, don't get away that easy. Can you move it on for me? It's not moving. Is it stuck? There we go. Winchester's at the bottom here, South Monston again, Basingstoke, Whitchurch, Andover, and all the way up in Newbury. There are communities all over this place that Jesus wants to change. And as disciples, how are those communities changing? Because there are disciples in them. For me, the kind of church culture that I and my family grew up in broadly taught that discipleship was largely focused on education and personal discipleship. That's the kind of route that I was kind of brought up in. It was quite list-based. There was quite a lot of focus on getting more of the Bible in and more sin out. Can anybody relate to that or is it just me? Okay. Now it's not that any of those things are wrong. But there wasn't much emphasis on how I, as a person of influence, a scattered servant, might impact the community, the school or the college that I was in. I don't remember anyone ever coming to faith because of me. I don't certainly never knowingly made a disciple. I never knew the authority that I carried as a follower of Jesus or the identity that I had in him as his child. I certainly didn't know the spiritual and emotional implications of that for me. And for those around me, the sense that I had was that church was basically about making believers strong enough to survive the culture rather than influence it. A bit like a siege mentality. Luckily, Paul's left his salt pot here. A bit like just basically everything we can do to stay in, not, you know, spread out. I didn't know where I fitted in at school. I didn't know how to be a Christian in my school environment. My few school friends that I had didn't really understand me. They tolerated my faith, kind of humoured it, I think, but didn't really get it at all. And I certainly wasn't equipped to explain it or even demonstrate it. Um, I really didn't know how to handle things when all of my mates started getting into drinking and parties and all of that, which is what you do when you're a teenager generally, what most of them seem to do. There was a Christian union where we would sing a few songs, talk about the Bible, and then I remember one of the girls disappearing at the age of about 15 and coming back with a baby. I remember thinking, I thought this was a Christian union. And again, I'm not judging anybody here. But I just remember thinking, what I'm hearing and reading doesn't matching up with real life here. It was her baby, by the way, just in case you thought she'd stolen it from anybody. And then there was my Christian mates, the Christian mates at church who also had a quite interesting outlook on life. They, like me, were taught the Bible, the holiness thing, the sin thing, and all of that. And although we did have some kind of community, I do remember that quite a number of them weren't really living any differently from than the world. And they probably, the truth is, the whole, I wasn't really living that differently either. 
certainly when I got to university. I'm, again, I'm not here to judge anybody. But discipleship, the way I grew up, it just didn't really work for me. And although I knew and loved Jesus, I'm not really sure that I knew what a disciple was or how I was supposed to either be one or make one. And through all of this time, I hadn't really encountered God's presence in any significant way. I didn't know about God's kingdom. I didn't know about his big story. I didn't know about his plan for the world. You know, Alan Scott, who we've been listening to a lot recently, says this. You can't focus on sin avoidance and expect kingdom influence. It's changed lives that change cities. Paul and, and Paul recently gave a great example a couple of weeks ago. He talked about how, you know, when you've got sort of... Um, he talked about dictators in history. He talked about dictators in China and various other countries and particularly about Hitler. And Paul said this and it really stuck out to me. He said, don't think for a moment that it isn't possible to disciple a whole city or a whole nation or in Hitler's case, almost a whole continent into a certain way of thinking, into a certain mentality or a certain way of life. It is entirely possible to do that. It's just the question is, what are you discipling them to? And so for my last few minutes, I've just got three um, broad brush kind of things that I want to flag up um, to set the context for what we're going to talk about more specifically next week. These are all biblical, and uh, there's three of them. Discipleship, for me, is about restoration, it's about nations, and it's about fruitfulness. So thinking about restoration... We've talked about this a lot recently anyway. Um, the first thing, when we think about discipleship, we, I think we've got our, sometimes we get our, our focus too narrow. We think, oh, someone's come to faith and they need to learn a bit more about Jesus and they need to learn a bit of the Bible and go through a course. Actually, we talked about this. We talked about renewal, revival, reformation, and that the, the end of everything, God's big plan, is restoration. God's big plan is restoration. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. That's in Revelation. But back in Isaiah, he says the same thing. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The story of God starts with creation, perfection, purity. You know, we weren't designed to live with pain. We were designed to dwell with God, to work in his garden and extend his kingdom. All of the stuff that we go through, pain and heartache and frustration and brokenness and illness and sin and depression, anxiety, all of that stuff, it's, it's tough stuff. But none of it was in our original design. None of it was what God planned for us. It's all as a consequence, as a result of what we call the fall. And the story of God is to go from there through Jesus into restoration. The story of God is rescue and regeneration and lots more words beginning with re that I can think of. Recreation. To bring back life to people. Restoration is a work of God's Holy Spirit. It involves the original design and being reshaped by God. And for me, the truth is over the past 20 years, that's what God's been doing for me. My, my, my life with God has significantly changed over the past 15, 20 years as a result of just getting in touch with, dealing with some of the pain of those first early years. I'm not saying I'm totally there yet, I'm really not. But that's what the Spirit of God does. He reshapes us. He remolds us. He recreates us and restores us. And if we honestly believe that, then discipleship becomes more than just an exercise in personal devotion. It's actually an expression of the massive life that God has for us. 
It's a personal journey through a much bigger story. I want to read you part of an email that somebody sent us this week. This is somebody who's been on the Power to Change course. I'm not going to say their name. But I just want to read you a paragraph from the email that they sent us. This is the kind of email that we love to get, by the way, because it says to Joe and I, thank you so much for allowing this course to happen, you know, like we did anything about this. We didn't. This is all down to Mervyn and Claire and the brilliant team that are running it. So bless you. But I was really touched to read this. um, This person says this, we are now a significant way through the course, and God has begun to reveal something really, really important, some really important things to me that had somehow been buried incredibly deep within me, and forgotten about for 25 to 30 years. The rediscovery of these things is hard and painful, but the events and my subsequent reaction to them and all those years ago have made me realise how unhealthy and destructive my life has been, both physically and emotionally, and how I've, not, and how I've just been existing and not living, and existing in a life of constant fear of people, myself and memories. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? This is what God is doing right now through our Power to Change course. Soon, this person says, I will be forgiven, healed and able to start living. And there is a bit of me that for the first time ever in my life is excited about what the future might hold. And then this is the bit I love best. Thank you for allowing the course to run. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We're such great pastors because all we did was allow a course to run. That somebody else had the wonderful idea. And this is, Mervyn and Claire, this has been your baby dream for the last year or two to get this thing up and running. What a wonderful thing. Thank you for allowing the course to run. Lives are and will be changed because of it. Isn't that just a fantastic um, example of restoration going on right now? There are other stories I could tell you, but I don't have time. Discipleship is not a course or a class. It's bigger than that. It's an individual growing in Christ and entering into their story. It's walking with Jesus into every situation. Those of you who are old enough to remember the Martini advert, anytime, any place, anywhere. Okay? Any place and anywhere. There's kind of a bit of a funny thing there going on. Anyway, so it's not a course. It's walking with Jesus into every situation. Every situation. And Alan Scott says this as well. Personal formation happens every time we lean out of the narrowness of our story and into the largeness of his story. I'm really thrilled that that person and possibly all the people on the course are now beginning to think, how can I live life to the full, having experienced transformation for myself? It's not about getting a bit holier or a bit more mature or, you know, sinning less, although all that's good. It's restoration of individuals and then communities and then nations, which is what comes next. I've got some questions. I'm going to put these up at the end. What areas of our life does God want to bring healing and restoration to? And who are the people who God wants to bring new life to? Healing, restoration through us as scattered servants. I'm going to whiz through the, last, uh, the next couple of points, but it's all in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. So discipleship is about restoration, and it's also about nations. Discipleship is about nations. I said this at the beginning. I said to you that Jesus' last instruction in Matthew 28, we read it, was to go into the world and make disciples. He meant all nations. The mandate of discipleship is somehow connected to the destiny of nations. What does that mean? Does it mean go and find other Christians in other nations and have a coffee with them and read the Bible together? No, it doesn't. 
You've got to make them, not find them. Go and make disciples, not go and find disciples. When we think of discipleship in terms of individuals, we really miss something of Jesus' heart for the world. I think sometimes we might be guilty of slightly privatizing or romanticizing something which Jesus had in mind for to be much bigger than us. You know, we love therapy, we love community, we love exclusivity. And so we look at this picture of Jesus and his 12 disciples that he sent out. And we think, oh, isn't that lovely? Jesus had his special friends. You know, he, they're just a lovely group of people and they hung out together and they really did deep community life together. And if Jesus could only manage that with 12 people, then we can probably only manage it with about, well, maybe three or four, half a dozen, we'll be lucky. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? Anyone know? Because there were 12 tribes in Israel. This was a political, symbolic gesture. If you choose a disciple for every tribe in Israel, what you're basically saying is, I have come to change a whole nation. Why did Jesus then, we read later in Luke, send out 70, or some translations say 72 people? Anyone know? Brilliant. Because at that point, 72 nations was what they thought was the world. They were aware of 72 different people groups or nations. So Jesus sends out one person for every people group, every nation that he knew about. Discipleship is not a cosy thing for a few friends of Jesus. Discipleship is about nations and about the global impact. Jesus' message was so much bigger, so much more mind-blowing than anything we've ever really thought about. Most of us, I imagine. Apart from Paul, he thinks about these things all the time. Jesus came for the whole world. Making disciples is a global plan. Now, before Jesus died and was raised, raised, raised from the dead, I reckon the disciples wouldn't have got this. It wasn't until after he came back from the dead that he started to let this out a bit. Now, listen, guys, this is the big picture. This isn't just about us. This isn't even just about our nation. This is about all nations, the whole world. I can imagine them saying, well, how is it that we can just, there's just a few of us here, how can we do something that impacts the whole world? That's kind of impossible, Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, and so is rising from the dead. But look what just happened. He reframes their whole worldview. Suddenly, things that didn't seem possible are possible because Jesus has just got out of a grave. Societies were changed through a group of ordinary people who could just about hold themselves together, something happened to them which meant that they believed that they were there to change the world and they acted like it. And it happened within a few generations. I can't believe that they ever imagined that that changing of the world would come about through the power of the gospel as taught through structures and programs and courses. You guys, you guys in this town, just go on this course and, and you'll figure out what discipleship is. No, 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 no. To change the world back then, it needed people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to go and tell other people about their experiences with Jesus, just like that woman at the well. To change our world now, it needs people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the presence of God, just like we have been this morning, and then willing to go and live that out in everyday situations. Scattered servants in their communities. Scattered servants.
Discipleship isn't just about individuals. It's about the destiny of nations. And it starts with cities and communities. I've got a third point, but I'm going to leave it out and come back to it next week. I'll show you what it is. It's this, that discipleship is about bearing fruit. Jesus says that if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. I'm just going to give you one little point about this. I think you'll remember this. Have we got any children present? Think about the act of procreation. If everything is healthy in the moment of intimacy, then fruit bearing happens naturally. Is that a bit cryptic? Do I need to say it in... Do you get me? Okay. Do I need to say it in plainer, plainer X-rated English? No, no. In the act of intimacy, if everything is healthy and working out normally and naturally, then fruit bearing happens. And so through our intimacy with God, we need to bear fruit. We need to be fruit bearers. I'll say a bit more about that next week, but I just want to come to these questions at the end. Discipleship is not about a personal transformation. It's about being part of a living adventure story. Here are some questions. Why don't we stand? And what I want you to do is just take a minute to ask the Holy Spirit just to come and whisper to you as you reflect on these questions. And it may be one of them stands out more to you, but just, just kind of take a minute to go through them and just see what the Holy Spirit drops into your mind. So what areas of our life does God want to bring healing and restoration to? It may be that that's something for you today. Or who are the people who God wants us to bring new life to through healing and restoration? Are there any specific communities where God is inviting us to be the disciples and to make disciples? Where is it that he's calling us to? We probably, as individuals, can't, at least to start with, attempt the whole world. So where have we been sent to? What fruit do you see in your life? And thanking God for, and what fruit are we praying for? Holy Spirit, why don't you just come? You're here already, I know that, but we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to show us, to whisper, to nudge us, to prompt us as to how we respond to this message today. What are you saying to us about how we can be and make disciples? Disciples who change cities and communities nations. Holy Spirit, help us. Show us what our response should be. And let's just wait a sec. Let the worship guys come up, maybe. Let's just allow the Spirit to speak to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. By the way, I... I don't want you to think that I am down on courses, Alpha, Freedom in Christ, any courses. They're all brilliant and amazing. I'm not here to diss them at all. I don't want you to get that from what I've said today. I want you to understand that if that's all that we use or see as our discipleship, then it's very limited. And that God has a much bigger plan and a bigger story for us to enter into. 
So if you guys are running courses or involved in courses, then God bless you. That's fantastic. And I just pray that through that, God stretches you into this big adventure, this living story. Can you leave those questions up for me? Is that all right? And Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your work here. And we thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for the, the challenge that you give us. And Holy Spirit, you lead us to the Father and you lead us to Jesus. And we thank you that you'll do that today and you're doing it right now. And if you want to respond to, what, to any of these particular words this morning, if there's anything that you want to sort of specifically come and respond to, then we would love to pray for you. Maybe you are somebody who just needs the healing and restorative touch of God today. Maybe that's where you're at. And if that's the case, we would love to pray for you. Maybe you're somebody who senses that God has given or is giving you a bigger vision, that he's showing you the story that he wants you to be part of, the community that he wants you to disciple. And if that's you, we'd love to just pray and commission you and encourage you for that. If you know that there's a particular network or neighborhood or group of people that he's called you to, it doesn't matter if you've responded to this before. If you know that that's what God's saying and you know that his heart is, your heart is beating because that's what God is calling you to and that's the Holy Spirit, then we'd love to just pray God's blessing on you for that. And we'd love to commission you to that work that he's calling you to, to be a scattered servant in the place where he's put you. And there are others who would have responded to what Steve was saying about fear and feeling that you're under the shadow of fear at the moment. And we would love to stand with you and pray with you if that's something that you want to deliberately kind of step out of today. So if any of those apply to you or if you've come with another need, please do feel free to come and just stand in this place at the front and some people will come and pray for you. And as the worship team continue to play, there'll just be a lovely sense of God's presence and you can come and you can do that. Whatever, you, whatever your issue is, whatever you've come about, we would love to pray for you. So why don't you come? Come now if that's you. Don't be afraid. That's fine. Just step out and step into God's presence. And we wouldn't be us if we didn't invite you today. If you don't know Jesus yet and you'd like to come to know him for the first time, we would love to chat with you and pray with you about that too. So do come Keep forward. Step, take a step further forward, guys. That, that's brilliant. Thank you. Wonderful. Bless you. And let's have some folks from the church come and pray. Let's come and pray. Let's have you guys come now. If you're part of the church, if you're part of a small group, if you're used to doing this, come and just stand with and pray God's blessing on these ones. It may be appropriate to just ask them briefly why they've come and then just to start to pray God's blessing to help them stand in who they are and the authority that they have. I still need more folks from the church to come. Quite a few women I need to do to come and pray if that's okay. still need three or four. spoken to me quite specifically about some areas in people's bodies that maybe need some healing so I have a, uh, a swollen little toe on the right hand side like a really bad bruising I think you might have even broken a bone in your right foot uh, on the little toe and also on the big toe same foot other side not sure it's the same person though but it feels like there's a lot of pain difficulty walking uh, if that's you we would love to just pray for you now just still need two or three ladies to come and pray if, if you're able to and you're a lady and you can come and pray that would be wonderful 